Thank you, Blake. Praise team. If you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Ephesians chapter 6, 18 to 20. Most of you may remember uh, a few uh, months ago, it's been almost a year and a half ago now, when I first came here, it'd be six months maybe after I got here, uh, our youngest daughter, our youngest child, our daughter Natalie, uh, went to the hospital uh, with necrotistic pneumonia. Now, basically, she had uh, flu, she had uh, strep, and then she ended up also getting pneumonia, which remained undetected because it was the height of flu season. And everybody that saw her tested her and said, well, she's got flu and she's got strep. The reason for her uh, attitude and her demeanor and her the out- outward appearance is because she's got those two things. So go home with these particular medications and, and sh- in a few days, she'll be fine. And so we went home and we did what they asked us to do and she wasn't getting any better. And so we went to the hospital and they said, oh, it's just the flu and it's just strep. It takes a while, but you do have the wrong drugs. And so they gave us the right antibiotics and they sent us back home again. And that still didn't work. She got worse. And so we took her back to the hospital. Finally, a third time they did a chest x-ray and they found that she had a lot of fluid on her lungs and her lung was completely collapsed. Her, her, one of her lungs was completely collapsed. And so the reason for her uh, attitude and her demeanor was not really flu and wasn't really strep, though I'm sure that played a part of it. It was the pneumonia that had set in on her lung and had started to kill some of the lung tissue in there. She had lost the capacity to breathe. And I remember the night that we took her to the hospital that was the, the finally when they figured it out. I remember Andrea had put her to bed and she came back down and she said, look, I, I just don't feel good about this. I don't know. Uh, what's going on, but I just, something is just not right with her. For weeks leading up to that, she had only wanted Andrea. She had only wanted to sit in Andrea's lap. She didn't want to play. She didn't want to get on the floor. She didn't want to do anything. She only wanted to sit there, and she wanted to sleep. And so she had all these symptoms, and, and Andrea just I said, you know, go with your gut. Go with what your gut tells you. Uh, a mother's intuition, right? There, there's something about a mother's intuition. And so when she took her to the hospital, we realized, in fact, the reason for her demeanor is she lost the capacity to breathe. She couldn't take a deep breath without it hurting at all. Because what we know to be true about our lives, this is a, a completely obvious truth, I know, but breathing is an essential component to life. Shocker. Amen. If you can't breathe... Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters if you can't breathe. It's an essential component to life. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at the spiritual discipline of prayer. We're going to be considering what place it takes in our church, in our worship service, why we pray the things that we pray, why we pray in the pattern that we pray our prayers in. And we're going to see, I think, that prayer is much like a Christian form of breathing. That there's an outward disposition that a lifestyle of prayer often gives away. In many times, many cases, you can see a person in your church who has a disposition of a, of a strong prayer life. You can see it in their attitude and their demeanor as they go about their life. The lifestyle of prayer is often evident Just as a person breathes or can't breathe and you can see their attitude on the outside, so too a lifestyle of prayer is evident on the outside. Look with me at our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, if you don't change our hearts, nothing else will. They'll remain hardened. So with your word, please, Lord, renew our minds that we may no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, 
but that they may be transformed into your way of thinking. So help us see the meaning of this text. Help us apply it to our lives individually and corporately to our church body. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So for the last several weeks, we've, been, uh, we've considered several aspects of Christian worship. What it is that we're doing when we come here on a Sunday morning, or what it is that we do uh, throughout the rest of our lives. And one of the first things, first aspects of worship that I said was that worship must be directed to God the Father. Second, that worship must be through God the Son. Third, that worship must be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we settled, or I settled, on this definition that I gave of worship just a few weeks ago. Worship is the expression of the worth of God. It's the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who He is and by the power of the Holy Spirit celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation that He provides in Christ alone. Let me say that again. Worship is the expression of the worth of God. It's based on a proper understanding of who He is. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation that He provides through Christ alone. So in other words, what we come here to do on Sunday morning is really born out of a heart that the Lord has already transformed and that has already begun working on. So we get corrected in our thinking while we're here. Absolutely, we do. We get reminded about who he is. Yes, absolutely, we do. But our hearts first have to be truly his before we can even begin to worship. Further, when we express the worth of God, when we understand who he is, and when we celebrate salvation that can only be found in Christ alone, that is something that you and I don't have to be in this room to do. You and I can be at home and do that as well. We come here for a unique kind of experience. It's essentially worship concentrate that we're here to get. That's uh, fundamental for our life throughout the week. We edify one another. We lift each other up. We sing praises to God. We get sort of a worship concentrate that then spreads in our lives throughout the week. But we repeat this same pattern in our lives at home throughout the week. So last week we focused on singing. And we said that singing is the fruit that is already being cultivated in our heart. The Spirit has moved in. He started to change our heart. He started to mold it, and He started to make it. And so then our singing is an overflow of what He is already doing. Singing is like the aroma that comes from food. Last week I said, if the bread baking in your heart is made by the Spirit of God, then out of your mouth will come the aroma of song. So, And I think that's true. If the Lord is building something in your heart already, then out of your mouth is going to come the aroma of song. So our singing is to the Lord for who He is. But it's also to one another for building each other up and edifying each other in our congregation. So therefore, each of us become effectively choir members in the congregation, both to the Lord and to other people around us. Much to the chagrin, maybe, of the people around us. It's fine. This morning, what I think we're going to see, what the Bible says about another aspect of worship, prayer. Prayer is certainly part of our daily life, or should be at least a part of our daily life. But Paul also tells us it's a part of our corporate gathering too. We should pray together. He tells Timothy as he's going to pastor this church in 1 Timothy 2, 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he's telling Timothy there, go into the church as you pastor the church. The prayers should be made for all people. That you should be engaged in prayer. So as it turns out, what we should be doing at home, praying in our private life, is also true of our corporate life together in, as we gather together in prayer. And then Paul tells him just a few verses later in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, he says, I desire that uh, then that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands without, without anger or quarreling. So you can see how important it is for Paul to say about your church, it should be a praying church. This is what you should do. You should engage in prayer. 
So prayer plays an important part in our worship service. But I want us to think more about the role specifically it plays, not only in our worship service, but also in our daily life. What is it? How is it that Paul describes it here in Ephesians chapter 6? The first thing that I think we want us to observe about this text is that in worship, we pray so that we may keep alert. In worship, we pray so that we may keep alert. So let's consider the context of the passage that we are in here. You you probably are familiar, many of you in this room may be familiar with Ephesians chapter 6. I'm sure that even if you don't remember the passage that I read, or if you couldn't recite the passage that I read, I'm quite confident that some of you have probably heard the passage that comes right before it, where Paul describes to the Ephesians how to stand putting on the whole armor of God. I think you've heard more than one sermon on the armor of God, I'm quite confident. But most of those sermons, are going to focus on a particular set of verses in this passage, and many of them are going to stop at verse 17. You see there in verse 17 where it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, they stop. A lot of people stop there because that's where all the cool war metaphors stop. And so the cool sermon illustrations of the, of the guy getting dressed up for war uh, kind of stop there. So, you know, let's stop our sermon there. But the passage goes on and it actually tells us some really important things. In fact, what we read this morning is actually finishing Paul's thought on the whole armor of God and what it actually means. And what Paul is describing is how it is that you actually take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you look back in verse 10 of this passage, Paul tells the Ephesians, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul is concerned, obviously, with the church at Ephesus and their ability to stand against cultural opposition. But but really, more than that, he actually wants them to stand, if you notice in the context, against the spiritual forces, the demonic uh, things that are at work and that are impeding or opposing their lifestyle of holiness. And anything that would impose a, upon their lifestyle of holiness, he's praying that they would be able to stand against. And putting on the whole armor of God is part of that. You notice he reminds them there in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the challenge that Paul is presenting to the Ephesians is that the battle that you're in is too big for you. The battle that you're facing, the real war that you're engaged in is far too big for you. And it can't be as easily fought as flesh and blood can. Oh, You can fight flesh and blood, but you can't really fight against this without the proper tools. The battle, rather, is a spiritual one. And the reason uh, uh, that that Paul gives the list that that he gives about the armor is very important. But you see, Paul doesn't have in mind, when he gives this list of armor, he doesn't have in mind... Roman armor. Now, all of my first grade Sunday school teachers are rolling over in their grave hearing me say that. Because I remember very vividly being a boy in Sunday school in first grade, and we had the flannel graph. Who remembers a flannel graph? You got the felt board up there with the little figure, all right, cut out from paper. It's a little boy in a toga. You probably remember this. I can see it. I mean, in my mind's eye, little, little boy with a toga, and everyone in the room had a little vest, a little, ar- a little armor, breastplate, had his little uh, belt, had his, his shoes, and had all those kinds of things. And you went up to the board if you got the right answer, and you got to stick the thing on the figure, right? And before long, at the end, you had a Roman soldier properly fitted for battle. Now, the problem with this is that the Roman soldier is not in Paul's mind. Paul's not thinking of a Roman soldier when he says this. And I know this not because I'm a mind reader, all right, but because it's very obvious if you read the book of Isaiah where he got the armor of God. He got it from the book of Isaiah. 
Look at these verses in Isaiah 11:5. It should appear on the screen behind me. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 59:17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 52:7. Isaiah 52:7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. But you notice what's true of all of those verses. Paul seems to mention this him. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Righteousness is a breastplate. Uh, he will wear a helmet of salvation on his head. Who is he talking about? Well, Isaiah is looking forward to the day when Messiah comes. And this is how you will recognize Messiah. He will be wearing the armor of God. That's how you will recognize him. So in Paul's mind, he's reflecting on the armor that Christ himself, God in the flesh, war. And he's telling the Ephesians that when they get up, in fact, us, he's telling us too, that when they get up in the morning to put on Christ every single day, to put on the righteousness that Christ gave you. See, this armor that you're putting on is battle tested. It's already been worn in battle. It's our, the battle's already been fought. That's how you can fight the spiritual forces that are at war with you is you wear Christ's armor instead of your own. Why? Well, he says in verse 13, so that we may be able to stand firm in the evil day. So that we may be able to stand firm in the evil day. But I want you to notice how Paul is making his point in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, stand, command, stand therefore having put on the armor of God. Okay, so the armor of God is this parenthetical statement of what it actually means to stand. It's like saying, get up, having put your clothes on, and come help me. Part of what it means to get up and get ready is to put your clothes on. So when Paul says stand, he defines what it means by saying, having put on the armor of God, of course, having understood that you're saved through Christ's blood alone, you put on the very nature of Jesus. But then he says in verse 17, which is the next command in the passage, the next command in the passage is take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So stand, having put on the armor of God, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Well, you might be inclined to ask, well, how do I... How do I put on the helmet of salvation? How do I take the sword of the Spirit? See, you're ready to go into battle now. You've got your helmet on. You've got your sword in your hand. You are ready to go into battle. But how do I do that? How do I actually wield salvation and put it on my head? How do I wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? That's our text this morning in verse 18. And what he says is praying. That's how you wield it. That's how you wear salvation. That's how you wield the Word of God, is you pray in the same way that to resist the flaming darts of Satan, you have to embody the very nature of Christ, humble as He is, pursuing of righteousness as He is, dependent on God as He is. You also are to charge into battle with your helmet on your head and with your sword in, the, in your hand. And in order to do so, you must commit to prayer. Our worship service over the last year and a half has grown in length uh, by about 15 or 20 minutes, roughly. And there have been many guesses that I've heard as to why it's grown the way that it has and why the time has gotten longer as it has. And the foremost among the guesses, of course, is a oh, preacher's gotten more long-winded. I can understand that. I get that guess. I do, because I often feel long-winded. Um, but no, it's actually prayer and scripture reading have been added to the service. That's very common in most Southern Baptist churches, and I think it was true here of when I first came, that the prayers in the church, in the church service, are mostly for transition. 
that many churches in, in, in America and in, really in the world abroad um, pray in order to transition to, from one thing to the next thing. So you would have the, the opening prayer where someone would pray and thank the Lord for it. And that was so that the praise team can get up on the stage so that you don't have to see them move anywhere, Right. So that they can just appear as if from nowhere, uh, because God forbid we see anyone move into position uh, and, and get to their, their places. And so the prayer would typically be pretty short. It would be, Lord, uh, thanks for the day. Thanks for an opportunity to come and worship you. And uh, basically, the person praying is typically listening for all the people to get settled in their place. So again, that we don't see anybody appearing. And, uh, and then the prayer commences or uh, concludes, and uh, we begin with the singing. Uh, and then typically there is a prayer somewhere along the way for the offering, and then usually a prayer for the benediction, and sometimes the pastor will pray uh, during or after his sermon. There's just typically a few prayers. You know when those prayers are supposed to take place, because you've been in, many of you have been in Baptist churches for a long time. It's sort of intuitive to you. But perhaps nothing characterizes our Western churches and our Western worship services more than a lack of prayer. Considering that even in the early church, they would meet for three hours just praising and preaching. And then all of the non-members, non-Christians, anybody looking on would be dismissed. And for the next three hours, they would gather together to take the Lord's Supper and to dedicate their hearts and minds to prayer. That's all they would do. For the next three hours, they would pray. And yet probably nothing characterizes our worship services. That's here, across America, across the world, more than a lack of prayer. If you venture into any, virtually any modern worship service in America today, you will find that prayer is primarily used for transition, to get from one thing to another, for people to move around the congregation. Maybe even for Thanksgiving and supplication, right before the offering. Lord, thank you for this the money that you have provided to us. Please bless it or multiply it, as it were. Two big prayers have been added of late to our worship service. A while back, we began implementing a prayer of confession. It's a time in our service where we simply just stop everything that we're doing and we just confess sin. And I'm willing to bet if there's one place in the service that feels the strangest, that feels maybe the most awkward or weird, it's that part of the service. For one, there's no background music going on. And when it's silent, it feels like a really long time. Right? Yes? Okay, yes. We can just say that. Yes. Feels like a long time. For two, sometimes you're asked to think about sins that you're not convinced you've committed. You know what? As an aside, that's good. I'm, I'm perfectly happy that you haven't committed those sins. I think all of us should be. What Jeremy is doing up here is simply calling to mind that the Scripture actually speaks to these certain things. So you may be sitting there this morning going, I don't think I'm a glutton. Great! That's a wonderful thing. Thank you that you're not. But it's also a time where we can bring to mind some things that you may not have been aware of that the scriptures actually speak to. And perhaps you do struggle with gluttony and it's never been called that to your face. And so you have an opportunity to go, you know what? Yeah, I, I am a glutton and I do need to pray about those things. But then there's a time to turn it over to the congregation where you're free to pray about any sin that you might be convicted of. To just stop and have a time where we can be convicted and confess sin. But, but third, and I think this is probably the reason that it feels the most strange in our service, is because most of us have never been in a church that actually does that. Can you imagine that? Thought of that. Most of our churches that we go to in, in the world, we don't stop and just confess sin. Amen. Just stop and remember that I've been prayerless all week. To just stop and, and, 
confess to the Lord that, that thing that's on my heart. Can you imagine? But look at what Paul says in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance, for all the saints. What is it that Paul wants us to know about prayer in that verse? Well, he says all four times in one verse. I think maybe he wants us to draw our attention to that word. That there's something significant about prayer. Prayer is to, in other words, invigorate, enliven, go between, undergird, work within everything we do. It's not just supposed to be sprinkled on top of things that we're already planning on doing anyway. It's how we take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. How are we ready to read God's Word and apply it to our lives? How? How are we ready to wield the sword of the Spirit in that way against our own heart? We pray for it. We prepare our hearts by confessing sin at the opening of our service. It's just dedicated to adoring God. Just a prayer of adoration. We're not asking for anything. We're just simply stopping and remembering God is worthy to be worshipped and that's why we're here. And if he's not, we might as well go home. But we're reminding ourselves through supplication of, of that, that he is the source of everything we need. When we ask for things, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves, God is the source of everything that I need. So prayer is described as something that you and I are to do at all times, Paul says. And even as, as we engage in other tasks throughout the day. We're to still be engaged in prayer. There are many prayers that I pray even while I preach. That I pray in my head silently to the Lord. Just short prayers asking for the Lord to allow this message to be conveyed to the hearts of his people. To be true in my own heart. To remove any barriers that would cause us to not be able to hear the gospel as it is preached or the word of God as it is preached. There are times when I feel like I'm getting in the way or feel like the message isn't clearly communicated and I'm depending on the Lord. Lord, you've got to take this message and do something with it because I don't have it. I don't have anything within me to convince your heart to follow Christ. I don't have anything within me to convince my heart to follow Christ. It's got to be the Lord's work. And so we continue to pray. It's the same thing to do whenever I counsel people in my office. There's all kinds of problems that are presented to me on a daily basis that I, I don't know what to do with. And so I'm in prayer as they're talking to me, as I'm talking to them, Lord, you have to give me wisdom here. I don't know how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I don't know how we're going to come upon anything here. You're going to have to help me. The only illustration that seems to fit that kind of example of prayer, that kind of mentality that Paul is communicating is breathing. Breathing is something that you and I do without even telling ourselves to do it. It empowers us to take the next step. Wherever we go, everywhere we go, we can't really go very far. We can't do much without taking a breath. Not for very long anyway. Paul commands the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. He tells them, pray without ceasing. There's a command for you. How, what does that mean? Pray without ceasing. There's constant engagement for the Christian in prayer. Every time that command comes up, everybody always asks, typically always asks, what does that mean? Pray without ceasing. What, what, what's, what's that mean, pray without ceasing? Well, it means without ceasing. Well, that, that's... What's it mean in the Greek? All right, Greek translation. Are you ready for it? Without ceasing. That's what it means. But let's look at how he says that we're to do this. Why Paul is pushing so hard against us to be dedicated toward much prayer. 
It's because the line of communication is always supposed to be open, like a walkie-talkie, if that's a better metaphor for you, a walkie-talkie. I might let the bottom off or the the button off from time to time, but I should be quick to be able to hit that button at a moment's notice for communication directly with God the Father. That's, of course, not to say that I don't struggle with prayerlessness. Of course I do. Of course I try to do things in my own power. But it's pride and sinfulness. He says, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert for what? What do we keep alert for? Remember the context of you being under attack constantly. In verse 16 he says, uh, Under the flaming darts of the evil one. So if you are one that draws in your Bible, you might want to underline, keep alert, and draw an arrow back to flaming darts of the evil one. You're keeping alert because the devil is constantly lobbing attacks at you. And you may not even be aware. But prayer is the way that you constantly are aware of the attacks that are being thrown at you on a regular basis. You may recall uh, Jesus in the garden in Luke 21, 36, where he takes, he's just about to go to death, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him in the garden, and they're having trouble staying awake, literally staying awake, and they're, 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 they're falling asleep, but he comes to them, and he says, stay awake at all times. Wow. Praying that you may have the strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand Before the Son of Man. The same commands Jesus is giving there. He recognizes that their sleepiness, their drowsiness, their unattentiveness to the situation at hand is a direct result of the attacks that Satan is lobbing at them. So that they cannot pray. So that they will not be able to, to stand before the Son of Man when things get real. So he tells them, pray. Prayer is not merely getting ready for battle, but it's how you keep your head on a swivel. It's how you're able to turn and see all the fronts that are constantly coming at you. You're constantly keeping eyes all around you for how Satan is attacking you. And I promise you right now, in your daily life, Satan is attacking you in a way that you are currently unaware He is currently doing things to you that you think are completely natural. I guarantee it. And it's only when you begin to engage in prayer through the reading of his word as well that you begin to see, oh, that problem that I'm having or those things that are going on in my life, they're not simply just how the world works. They're Satan's attacks on me. They're causing me to doubt the goodness of God. They're causing me to lose faith. The Lord will continually bring to mind as you read the things that you need to confess, the things that you need to ask for forgiveness for, the things that you need to pray for, for constant endurance. And these things come to your mind, these areas of life that remain under attack, things that you've never considered before. But it bears mentioning that this is for those who are disciples of Christ. See, this is the regular pattern of attack for us. This is how life is for us on a daily basis for the Christian. That from the moment you wake up, you're under attack. And you recognize it as a a satanic attack on you. But for those that are not disciples of Christ, for those that have not confessed their sins to Him and are not trusting in Him alone for their their sanctification. Let me tell you, all of us are going to stand before the Lord one day. All of us are going to stand before God and give an account for all of those attacks we we succumbed to. Every single one of them. Every careless word, Jesus says, we're going to give an account for. The child of God stands with a defense attorney of Christ himself. God knows that we cannot stand on that day if it were left to just us. So he sent his son to be perfect, to live a life that we never could, to die a death that we deserved and offer to us by faith his righteousness. 
But see, if you're not a disciple of Christ, then Satan just has his foot on your chest. It's death for you. That's the only option. Unless, of course, you reach out by faith, believing in Christ and his sacrifice, by which you can enter into the throne room in prayer and ask for help. And as a child of God, he helps you. He gives us divine help. But you can't take up the helmet of salvation. You can't walk into the throne room of God in prayer if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation. So my my recommendation, my plea to you is to repent of your sins and believe and trust and follow Christ and Christ alone. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Christians, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about prayerlessness. I want you to think about what prayerlessness actually is. We all have it. We all struggle with it. If you were to go around and do a survey of the the hardest discipline in the world to nail down for the Christian, most of us are going to say prayer. But think about what prayerlessness actually is. Prayerlessness is as foolish as charging into a battle without a helmet or without a sword. You seen George? Oh yeah, there he is. He's just screaming, running across the battlefield, no helmet, a sword. What an idiotic picture that is. They're just running out there in the battlefield. But it's how we properly wear the helmet of salvation. It's how we wield the sword of the Spirit, which reveals the sin in our lives, in the lives of the people around us with whom we share the gospel. The Word of God, His literal words to us, is how He speaks to us. He speaks through it. He reveals sin, but He also gives hope. He draws us further into the worship of Him. So prayer allows us to properly read and understand His Word and to use it for the benefit of other people. Which brings me to the last point. In worship we pray so that we may be bold in gospel witness. In worship we pray so that we may be bold in gospel witness. Paul adds to the end of his exhortation here at the end of verse 18 all the way through verse 20 that they should always keep in prayer. He says, for the saints and also for me, for Paul, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then he says that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So the reason for his exhortation to pray for him is so that that he may be able to proclaim the gospel, that the Spirit will work in him and through him, giving the words to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. See, this is the second aim of prayer. The first aim was that we remain unfazed by the attacks of Satan, that we may remain unimpeded in our pursuit of holiness against the satanic arrows that are lobbed at us. You can see that in our, that is our primary focus is unwavering holiness that the Lord has called us to. But the second aim is that we would not be uh, playing defense for the rest of our lives. Because all that is about defense. Where's the offense? When do we get the ball? When do we get to charge? That's what the prayer is for. That we would be able to take up the helmet and the sword and actually be able to go out into battle and use it in offense. Give me the words that that when I open my mouth, I might be able to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The word mystery is something that's unknowable apart from God's revelation. So Paul is praying that not only he would be able to articulate that mystery clearly, but that other people would be able to actually hear it and understand it. So Paul sees himself as an ambassador of Christ. He's an ambassador of Christ. But he happens to be in prison when he writes this. Yet he sees all Christians as the same kind of ambassadors. So he's asking, you see there, he's asking that supplication be made for who? All the saints. See, the beginning of our gospel witness is in, in, the, in the community around us is in prayer. That's how it starts. That's the first step of our gospel witness. But it's also deeper than that. Paul's convinced that the act of being a bold witness and proclaiming the mystery of God to the world is God's to grant. That you will not be a bold witness 
for Christ. You will not share the gospel without fear. You will not be winsome in your message. You will not open your mouth to give the gospel of grace without divine aid. I don't care how many seminars you go to. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how many tracts you memorize. If the Lord does not open your mouth and give you the words, you will be as useless as a cardboard umbrella. The work that God has for us to do, He also empowers us to do through His Spirit. And we have to pray for it. But I want you to notice something. Do you see all the kind, out of all the kinds of things that Paul is concerned with here? He's in prison. He doesn't ask them to pray that he would be released. I find that fascinating. His prayer is that he would go about sharing the gospel with those who are near him. He's not asking them to pray that his shackles would be torn away. Well, why is it that the vast majority of prayer in the Western church concerns those who are sick? I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for the sick. Of course you should. But I can almost guarantee you, if you looked at the prayer list of Sunday school classes across America in every church this morning, the vast majority of what you're going to find there, we'll say 90%, just to be generous, are people that are sick. See, we grow unimpressed by God, especially because the things that we ask Him for are things that in our mind will be sorted out by the natural course of events. I have a cold. Will you pray for me? Pray that it goes away. Next week, surprise, surprise, healed from the cold. Amen, praise the Lord. You might think, amen, praise the Lord in your mind because we prayed for that last week. But almost everyone in the room is convinced that this went away due to the normal course of events. But when you pray for your part in the work of the gospel, when you actually pick up a helmet and a sword and you start doing real work for the kingdom of God and you get on the front lines and begin doing work, your prayer requests start to change. There begin to be some more things that you're concerned about. When you begin to see the divine aid that comes to you there on the front line. People that cross your path that otherwise wouldn't. Words that you say you didn't even know you knew. Things that you say where you speak into their life they had, you had no idea that they were struggling with. When things like that happen and you see the divine aid that comes with proclaiming the mystery of salvation, no one can convince you that the Lord didn't do a work there. That the Lord didn't go before you. That he didn't answer your prayer in the affirmative. But if our prayer requests are any indication, is it that we don't know anyone that's lost or is it that we don't care? Either way we go, that's bad. But even if we don't know people that are lost... Are we praying that the Lord would bring people that are lost into our path? Are we praying that we would get to know someone, that you will open my mouth, that I can be a proper ambassador of you to people? So many people in churches across America are concerned about church growth, about the way their church grows. But they're convinced that it's the pastor's job to grow the church. But for the last 1,850 years, or at least all the time before the year 1850, right around there, evangelism was the church growth strategy. But who's the last lost person you shared the gospel with? When we stop sharing the gospel with lost people, We start to depend on the pastor and on the praise team to present a really compelling something on Sunday morning that will keep them coming back. 
Or we depend on the programs of the church being just so, so that it will appeal to the masses and that membership will grow up. And we, be, we, we end up being quite content just trading members from one church to another. Because that's what ends up happening, is one church becomes the cool church. They got the cool pastor, they got the cool praise band, they got the cool everything, the cool facilities, and all the people go there because that's the cool church to go to. And so they're there for a little while, and then what happens? Well, either that pastor goes to greener pastures where the budgets are bigger and where the buildings are bigger and where the whatever happens over there. He gets called there by the Lord, of course, and he goes there and then he leaves. And what happens to the church? Well, it's no longer the cool place to be anymore. So all the people that came because it was the cool place pack up and leave and go to another church in the area that they now know is the next cool place. And we end up being quite content with that pattern of church behavior in our communities so long as we're the cool church. So long as they're coming to us. Oh, you came from Alberta Baptist. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's bad. Oh, go home and have a seat, right? We're quite content. We don't ask any questions. Don't push back against that. As long as they're finding the cool church here, we're okay. But do you realize that when you share the gospel with someone who's never heard about Jesus or who is currently not following Jesus, They're looking to you to tell them what the church should be because they don't know. So they're coming here and they have no idea what cool is really supposed to be. Case in point, just as an example, new believers in the 90s, new believers in the 90s used to do hand motions to praise songs and we thought that was cool. Not only that, but we're taking new, new people in, and we're, the, the discipler is bringing these new Christians in, and he's going, yeah, this, this is cool. This is what you got to do to follow Jesus. You came from heaven to, earth, to show the way. You remember this? I'm not the only one. Come on, right? We thought that was cool. We were too dumb to know better. The person discipling us thought it, told us it was cool. And so we happily followed right along. And they're going, you're going, okay, we came from heaven to earth. They're depending on you to tell them. You're the one they're looking to. What do you do in church? Baptists have brought forward a new, it's not a new initiative, it's an old initiative. We did it back in the day called, uh, it used to be called Each One Reach One. You remember this? If you've been in the Baptist church for any period of time, you remember reach Each One Reach One, where you go out and you uh, reach a person for Christ. That's it. You just share the gospel with one person. And if 200 people in a congregation went and shared the gospel with one person, you would see, statistically, a new person come to faith in Christ. Now there's a new kind of initiative that's sort of rebranding that called Who's Your One? And basically the idea is to simply pray for the Lord to, to move in the heart of one individual. Give you a burden for one person in your life that is not a believer. Now in some cases you may not know a person in your life that's not a believer. In which case your prayer is that the Lord bring you someone that is not a believer. That you can just share the gospel with. And your prayer for them is that they would come to the Lord. They would hear you, uh, your sharing of the gospel, and that they would come to faith in Christ. Second prayer that we added to our church service is um, pastoral prayer, where we simply pray for churches in our area as they proclaim the gospel. This is precisely what we're trying to do is pray that there would be an avenue for the gospel open, not only in the money that we give, but also in in other churches around us that they will faithfully proclaim and that people will hear. This is what we're praying for, that God would open doorways of evangelism for us. And the question is, what do we do with this as a church? What do we do with this as individuals? You see, prayer is like breathing to the Christian. And just like breathing, a prayer problem shows up in many ways. A prayer problem is often evident in your life. It may manifest itself in hopelessness. You ever feel hopeless about where the country is headed? You ever feel hopeless about the way, where, your, where your neighbors are? Or the kind of pressure that you're feeling at work? You ever feel that feeling of hopelessness? Is it because of prayerlessness? Often it leads to greed and envy, covetousness, fightings, quarrels. It's what James 4.2 tells us. 
you have because you don't ask. And because you don't ask, you envy, you quarrel, you fight with one another. 1 Timothy 5, 11 to 16 remind us that gossiping, that slander, that busybodiness is giving in to satanic attacks and it's due to prayerlessness. It's all manner of sin that you can see in your life typically stems from a pattern of prayerlessness. So then the command to us is instead pray. Turn it over to the Lord that He will grant the request or perhaps He may change your heart in the process. One helpful tool I've found is to just keep a prayer journal. To simply open it up, write down the day you prayed something, write down what you prayed. Go back to it later on if it's been, if the Lord has answered that prayer and put when He answered it, if you can remember. Something like that, often we go, how could I possibly pray for an hour? There's no way I could do that. Well, when you start writing down enough things, when you start looking around at your life and seeing all the things that you need answers for in prayer, and you start writing those things down and you fill a notebook, an hour will be hard to contain your prayers. Second thing that I would ask for you, this is just from me to you, is to pray for me. Paul asks it to the church in Ephesus. I'm asking it to you, not that I'm on the level of Paul. But that I would be able to stand up here and boldly proclaim the gospel week in and week out and that we would see the fruit from your work throughout the week and my work throughout the week of evangelizing lost, of discipling people, that we would see that come to roost here. That as the gospel is proclaimed from the pulpit, that what people would know in the community around is that the gospel is proclaimed at that church right there. A friend of mine recently had a man come to him who had left his church and left his church sometime with his wife. He came back because his wife was leaving him. And they left for crazy reasons. And I remember Nathan being very frustrated at the time. And the guy sat down in his office and he said, my life's a wreck. My wife is leaving me. I've been engaged in all kinds of sin. But I remember the Bible was preached here. And so I've come back here for answers. You can't expect that to happen. You just preach and it happens. But we need prayer to undergird that. So I'm asking for you to continue to pray for me that I would have endurance that I'd be a faithful parent, that I'd be a faithful husband, that I'd be a faithful minister of the gospel. But that goes for all of us. Continue to pray for our church as we go out into the community and minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for us as a church body. Lord, that you would give us boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That as we do, we would see the fruit of evangelism. But that first and foremost, we would wake up on a daily basis and commit to living lives of holiness that you have called us to. That your spirit empowers us to. That Christ himself enabled us to. Lord, we know that because we are in Christ, we can please you. For which we're incredibly grateful. So we pray that we would get up every morning, that you would lead us by your spirit to put on your armor and that with prayer, we would go out into battle. In Jesus' name, amen.